Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. Ryan Tansom here. Today's episode is a unique spin on all the other conversations and episodes we've been having. Today, we have a guest named Chris Yates who successfully sold his digital marketing business and then began investing and acquiring internet website companies with his friend David, who had come into some money after selling his company. They have a unique perspective on how to demystify online companies really drive into the value drivers, what the due diligence process looks like, and who are these online companies. This episode is great for anyone that is listening that wants to know more about the online business and the online world of how internet companies are making money, how they're valued, and how that applies to both the online business valuation and the traditional business and how the marriage between the two is converging at a speed that we haven't seen before and what you can do about it and how that'll impact the future value of your business. So without further ado, here's Chris Yates. Chris, how are you doing today? Ryan, thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I love your your background and it's a it's a unique twist um, for our listeners because of the expertise that you've got and then the the niche that you play in. So for our listeners sake, can you kind of go back and give us a little bit of a synopsis on how you got to where you are today? Sure. So I suppose the place to start would be in 2009. Um, I was operating, running a digital marketing agency and my typical day was kind of I would describe it as being kind of chained to my desk a little bit. I was uh, on the phone with clients, kind of managing expectations. When am I going to get this this project done? Um, can I get the client the content for this website we're building for you? You know, things like that. And then I had kind of the in-house employee uh, headaches that that come along with all of that. And um, at the time, you know, I'd had a, a child not too long ago uh, at this time, and and it was sort of like I was looking at my life like this is not exactly the life I had envisioned for myself. And um, kind of fortuitously around that time, I had a former employer called me up and he's like, hey, Chris, I'm about to sell my company and um, kind of looking for the next thing to do because I have this this earnout that's going to be like a three to five year earnout. And, and so I won't have a lot of time, but I'll have some capital to put into something. And so we put our heads together and we're like, well, what can we do together? It doesn't take a lot of time, but um, but also would allow us to kind of leverage some of our skill set in terms of being able to market online and build online businesses. And we came up with this idea that we'd go out and we'd find a website or an online business that was already earning money. We'd acquire it. We'd take over the operations and essentially keep doing that over and over again to build up like a portfolio of these website-based assets. And so like in that first year, I think we bought like 10 different websites. um, And these ranged in terms of um, prices. But Generally, when you when you hear me talking about this stuff, think 50k to five million in that range is usually where um, me and my clients and community and all that kind of stuff play. So for us, we were at the lower end of that initially, and um, and it was all over the board. Like we had no real strategy. It was just like let's just go buy some stuff, right? And um, it was way more fun than dealing with kind of clients and employee headaches <laughs> and stuff like that, obviously. And the returns at the time were, were phenomenal. Like, I mean, we're talking like triple digit annualized returns on our money. Obviously, we're 
we were doing the work to operate and grow these things. But you know, if you just looked at it from from a just overall perspective, you took our time out of it. It was like triple digit annualized returns. And I'm like, well, this is way more fun than than, than this this digital marketing agency. So I ended up selling my um, digital marketing agency to get full time into to buying and, and operating and selling these online businesses. So took me probably, I would say about two years or so to get to the point where I'd pretty well replaced my income from that digital marketing agency and then some. And I found myself in this position where, okay, I no longer have um, employees. I no longer have, well, in-house, so to speak. They were all you know, kind of digital or outsourced, yeah, freelancers, that kind of thing. But, um, and then I no longer had um, clients on the phone all day. And I found myself in this place of like unexpected, which was like, I'm really isolated right now. This is extremely lonely. <laughs> like I'm sitting here all day. I have freedom of time and freedom of location, but I just like craved that connection. I try to explain to people that I would meet locally, like offline and and they're just like, I would explain it to them. And then like, I'd see him a week later and like, Chris, what do you do again? You build websites or something like that. And I'm just like, I kind of <laughs> gave up on it, you know? Um, and so I, my business partner had some experience with events and, and going to events. And I've been to some events and stuff like that. And I'm like, well, is there an event that um, kind of would let us go and, and find other people who do what we do and kind of geek out on it, right? And we didn't find one. And we're like, well, let's create the event. And so... Um, so we we called it originally the Internet Investment Summit, and this is kind of funny because we rented out like the nicest um, uh, space at the Wynn Hotel in Las Vegas, which is a really nice hotel there for those who who have ever been to Vegas. It's one of the nicer ones, and uh, we we marketed it and and created this event. And we got a whopping twenty people to come to the event, so not much of a summit, right? But um, <laughs> you got to start but, somewhere. <laughs> uh, yeah, you got to start somewhere. That's that's exactly right. So so anyway, um, we. The cool thing was, and it was kind of unexpected, is originally we we're like, okay, let's let's do this event and let's teach people how to do what we've done and get these kind of returns. And what ended up happening is that the peop- the 20 people who did come were like a much higher caliber experienced kind of online entrepreneur or uh, even an offline person who's interested in getting online. But they all came with like a smart business mind. And I think it's as a maybe it's a byproduct of people having an interest in, in acquiring businesses and selling businesses. They, they tend to have a smarter business mind or like an investor mindset. And so instead of us just sitting there and teaching everybody, we kind of created a really unique environment where people could share experience and knowledge and um, kind of create an open, I guess you'd say, knowledge sharing, um, experience sharing area. And, you know, you've probably heard of like entrepreneurs organizations, some of those kinds of things. So, we, you know, we, we kind of took some of that model and, and we incorporated it into the event. And the cool thing was after that first year, everybody started talking about um, the connections they were making and the quality of the people that were attending. And so we kind of leaned into that. And every year since, um, we've just done more and more of, of that. And, and the event's just, you know, slowly grown and things like that. And, um, you know, so so basically I was operating the the portfolio along with doing this event and, and those kinds of things. And now today, like, it's kind of interesting because... The way I describe it to people is the the business, the online businesses that I own kind of pay the bills, but the event and connecting entrepreneurs and seeing kind of the magic that happens from that has become more of my like passion. So I get to kind of split the two uh, best of both worlds a little bit. And, and uh, it's cool. Like we've had, I kind of lost track um, because of the spider web of connections that have happened. But um, at one point I was counting up like how many deals have happened as a result of people buying other people's businesses or investing or partnering together. And it was like over $10 million that have happened because of this event. And it's just such a fulfilling place to be. So so that's me today. I, I basically have those two aspects to what I do. That's awesome because, I mean, 
you had to find a path. I mean, it sounds like you went down the hole. I got to find some passion to do what I'm doing because I've already kind of won the cash flow, uh, <laughs> the cash flow battle. Yeah, and there's more to it. I mean, I I don't know if it's relevant for the for the audience, but there was there were some defining moments there. Um, but but uh, and one of them was that isolation that I mentioned. Another one was the loss of a close family member and kind of being very. Um, getting into a place of being really down and at the same time, like having developed our portfolio to a place where I was no longer really actively acquiring and, and no longer really solving a lot of problems and creating a lot of new things. Mm-hmm. It was more of like I shift into, shifted into operations mode. And um, so the, the timing of us doing this event worked out really well with those things combined because it was kind of a low point for me. And, uh, and the funny thing is I'm, I'm extremely introverted as a, you know, just as a personality type. And so if, if you would ask me like, you know, six or seven years ago, if I'd be running events and be in front of stage, I would have said you're crazy, but it turns out that I really enjoy it. So <laughs> that's, oh, that's awesome. So I want to, cause you, there's throughout that story, a bunch of different little areas that I want to kind of dive into. Just kind of curious of when you, that the digital marketing company that you had, the agency, can you kind of give us an idea of what was the size of it? What were your, what, like, what was your suite of services and like, how long did you own it before you ended up selling it? Kind of give us a little bit of a storyline. Yeah. So this was my first attempt really at having a real business. I, in college, I'd had some little businesses and been part of some little businesses and stuff, but this was my first attempt at actually, you know, supporting a family and and having a, a business. And, you know, the clientele we had were essentially smaller companies, um, newer companies. It might be, you know, it, it could be an e-commerce store or it could be a dry cleaner, right? So it, it was very unfocused from that perspective. And the suite of services we were we offered were, um, you know, design, uh, development of, of websites, programming of sites, uh, internet marketing type of services, like getting people higher in the search engines. And, um, you know, just just the the typical kind of digital marketing agency for a small company. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, the company wasn't extremely large by any means, and uh, but it was enough to support me and my family and um, provide a living and, and have a few employees to, to help and that kind of thing. And um, so that was, yeah, just the scope of it. It was it was just a typical small, small company, kind of a two or three employee business. So when you're when you get your uh, your call from your friend, his, what, his name uh, it's an um what's his name again um you're chris his name's Sorry david gas thank you gas that's right so when you when he when, when david called you up you know what did you two you know now you've got this extra capital how did you figure out where you, like walk us through like the dialogue that you two had about where you wanted to focus your time and money um yeah i mean the dialogue was something along the lines of hey chris i um you know i want to i want to do something to prepare myself for my eventual exit because part of his structure and I you know obviously shouldn't talk about too much of it but let's just say that he had an earn out for a specific period of time and um so what he was thinking in his mind is like you know number 1 is like and and part of that earn out was him actually continuing to operate and run aspects of his quote unquote division in this larger organization that acquired him and uh, so he knew that, you know, number one is whether or not he would continue doing that and definitely was was up in the air. And then number two is like as soon as it was done, he wanted to be kind of ready for the next thing. Mm-hmm. So so that was part of his thinking was, all right, if we can go start buying some businesses and, and doing this, we could, um, you know, number one is him personally, he could be prepared. And then two was that he really has always loved working with me. And, and like we've always had a really good synergy together. I'm more 
of the technical, um, you know, I, I bring more of the technical expertise and he always brought some, some different aspects. Um, and, and another way to put it in personality types is he typically was the guy who would really put the foot on the gas. And I was sometimes the guy who would put my foot on the brake a little bit. Um, so, <laughs> so we really worked well together and, and it was just, it was one of those things where, um, he was somewhat of a mentor to me and this gave us an opportunity to continue to work together in some capacity. And, um, so I'm not sure. I, I don't remember like it's been years, so I don't remember like the I wish I could tell you like the exact dialogue, but it was something along those lines. And, and what year was it? Because you had started in 09. Was that when you started your company or was it in no, 09 I, when you guys had this conversation? Yeah, I think we we had this conversation in 09 and we bought our first website. It was either end of 09 or beginning of 2010. I'd have to look at the books okay. to see when we actually closed, but it was right around then. So now I want to go into the, the I think the golden question right now, which is for our listeners is like, how do you buy a website and what does that mean? So, well, first off, so I just just to define it a little bit, um, sometimes when people hear me say buy a website, they think like domain name. Like, like for instance, whoever owned um, Amazon, Amazon.com before Jeff Bezos bought it or whatever, <laughs> like that's a whole different game that like in re- I use the real estate analogy a lot. So um Think of domain names like raw land, right? Like there's typically not really like cash flow there. Maybe you put some banners up um, like you would in a piece of raw land where there's traffic coming by or something like that. And you make a little bit of money, but you're buying it for the intrinsic value of that thing, right? So mm-hmm. so th- when, when we talk about domain names, that's not what I do. That's a whole different area. So what I do is more like, you know, again, using the real estate investing term, is more like somebody who goes out and buys an apartment building that already has tenants established, right? So I'll go out and I'll buy, and it's, you know, a, a website that's operating. Um, it might be a blog, it might be an online store of some kind, um, and it's got traffic and it's already making some money. And typically, when I look at it, it's like, okay, well, I see that this thing is here. It has good traffic. It has. Um, uh, revenue here, which is kind of like the baseline. And typically when I look at it, it's like, okay, well, what else can I do to this to grow it? So I'm looking at it in terms of not only, you know, how risky is it to buy, but also what kind of opportunities do we have to grow this thing? Um, and there's different models of how people go about this. You know, there's the, again, real estate is a great analogy. There's the flippers who will buy something, fix it up quickly, turn around and sell it. And then there's, you know, more of like the the people who are looking for the long-term cash flow mm-hmm. and building out a portfolio of real estate, that's more of where we started when we uh, when we were focused on this. So we'd, we'd acquire something, we'd take it over, we'd grow it as much as we can um, with the understanding and skills that we had, and then we would uh, you know typically try to make it as automated as possible. And that's one cool thing about websites is oftentimes the business models, at least the ones that we acquired, are very low maintenance to actually operate. Now, growing them is a different question, but um, but to actually kind of keep them going is is oftentimes very low maintenance. So you can focus on the thing that you love, For in my my case, which is the the actual growth of them and, and marketing and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so how this goes down is, number one, you figure out where you can buy one. And there are brokerages out there, just like there's offline business brokers. There are auction sites where um, just like eBay, where you can go buy something from eBay, you can go buy a website at an auction. 
Um, there are just people who have websites that you meet at a networking event or something like that and you tell them what you do and perhaps they they may want to sell to you. And then there's people that you can just kind of cold contact and be like, hey, I saw you have this website. I'm looking to get in the industry. Like, would you ever consider selling it? And, you know, so there's lots of ways you can find them. But the most common ways are to find really good online business brokerages who specialize in kind of in this area. Hmm. And then from there, it's really a matter of getting um, a prospectus or getting on a conversation with the seller and uh, basically just finding out like, what does the revenue in this thing look like? What does the traffic look like? How are these guys making money? And then determining, you know, through a due diligence period, which is a whole separate conversation. But just let's just say that just like an offline business, you'll have a due diligence period where you inspect all of this stuff um, and uh, everything, you know, if everything looks good, you sign a letter of intent or you agree, whatever that looks like. Um, and you sometimes will go through a more detailed due diligence kind of inspection period. Um, there's escrow services to put money into escrow.com for instance. And then at that point, it's really just a matter of, of kind of closing and transferring. And typically the, um, the seller will, will provide some level of training and, and owner's manual and stuff like that. But the one, I think the one difference, and, and I don't know, this is always the case, but in some cases in offline businesses, there's a, um, let's just let's call it a stock sale that happens. With, with mm -hmm. online businesses and websites, typically you're just buying an asset. You're not buying an actual corporation or an LLC. You're literally just buying um, this asset owned by this company and you're taking it over. So like for me, we have an LLC that owns a bunch of different uh, websites and they're all under the same entity. Now, whether or not that's the most, the best strategy, I don't know. Um, I'm not an attorney or whatever, but that's the way we've done it just to keep things simple. So, so that's just like a high level of, of how the process would normally go. So my gosh, I want to go into this cause I, I just, I don't know too much about how the whole website online stuff works. Cause I've always been curious because I, I run into so many people that live online and I super, understand how it all works on the in the physical world and i'm just kind of curious so like what are the metrics and how do you value a company what's the future opportunity because just to and before you answer that like let's take a like a normal situation in, in the physical world or the, the you know the hybrid world where there's physical products and stuff so you got client concentration you've got reoccurring revenue you've got you know employee key employee risk you've got uh, cash flow scenario, all these things that impact the value of the company. So you know, like what key metrics you're looking at, the debt to equity ratio, all these things, right, that you're looking for. So, and then the the ways that you would maximize that opportunity. If you're a buyer, you know, if you're a financial buyer, you look at the ability for you to infuse cash uh, and and capital and grow it. Or a strategic buyer would, you know, add on a new product or service to their current offering. In your mind, like when you and your partner you and David are looking at companies like, is it product specific is like, what are you looking for? And what does that future opportunity look for? Okay, so did I, first, did I, let me did I, I'd say no, too no, much. It's, <laughs> it's great. Um, let me first tackle the valuation piece, just yeah. to, because I think that'll be helpful for people to have a context mm -hmm. of of what this looks like. So um, so I own a company called Centurica and we're basically, um, like a property inspector in a real estate deal. So we do kind of outsource due diligence for people who are buying websites. And what we do is we aggregate a bunch of listings from different brokerages. And then we run each year, we kind of do a report of what typical asking prices are coming in at hmm. for different business models. So if you look at across the entire spectrum 
of all online businesses that that were listed in 2016, the typical um, listing price for those or asking price would be another way to put it is somewhere around 2.54 times your seller's or your owner's discretionary earnings, which in offline business, again, I'm not as sophisticated Mm -hmm. in in some of the offline business stuff, but that's a tip. Is that a typical metric people look at? Yeah, so there'd be EBITDA or pre-tax income, but I mean that all, you know, there's a lot of interchangeable uh, terminology and depending on whether you're a CPA or you're, you know, just an entrepreneur, you're looking at free cash flow and then usually they apply a multiple to that, the multiple of earnings and then they discount it based on the risk. So, you know, anywhere between three to five, I think is usually a typical range of a multiple that they're applied to a physical, you know, physical goods and services business. Yeah, so... So EBITDA is very similar to this metric that the online business world has gravitated toward of, toward of seller discretionary earnings. The the difference, for whatever reason, is that um, there are assets that are significantly lower in value that are being sold. So think about like a $50,000 online business. Typically, those are owner-operated businesses. Mm-hmm. So what ends up happening is they'll take kind of EBITDA and they'll add back in well, they they basically well typically it's not even an expense, but usually the owner's salary is added back in um, mm-hmm. to something like EBITDA, right? And so um, that's what they call seller's discretionary earnings. So, so basically, one owner operated um, without their their salary being expensed. So that's kind of what is used as the basis for this multiple of two point five four, and that's kind of like the the typical industry. And that multiple. You know, over the years, when when I was buying back in like 2009, 2010, you know, I was typically buying for like one times um, annual seller's discretionary earnings. Today, it's more like two and a half times. But the interesting thing, if you look at the the kind of distribution of those valuations, they're really all over the board. So across that entire data set, you have like on the low end in 2016, 0.84 times seller's discretionary earnings. Uh, or sorry, not 0.84, that's a standard deviation. Uh, the minimum was like 0.57, so basically half year's earnings. And then on the high end, you had like 10.9 times earnings. So the ranges on these are all over the board, but they, you know, if you look at just kind of the averages or the median, it's usually around somewhere around two and a half times um, earnings. So so to give you an idea of where valuations are, um, obviously the ones that are coming in at lower valuations, sometimes they're misrepresented. Sometimes they... Um, they are extremely risky. Sometimes they take a lot of owners' time, um, and uh, you know, and or and some of them are, are at the very low end of that. Say, you know, maybe they're they're a 25k business. That one may may have a lower um, multiple of of earnings as their as their valuation criteria. So, so that is more from a. You mentioned kind of the two types of buyers: the the financial more driven ones, where they're just looking at it in terms of maybe. Um, I don't know, discounted cash flows mm-hmm. or, or um, a specific earning uh, metric that they're trying to get in a certain amount of time. Whereas there's the uh, strategic ones who are, you know, like, for instance, a deal happened in our space between a, a company called uh, Drip, which is an email marketing system who got oh, acquired yeah. by strategically by another one named Lead Pages. Um, and they're a local that company not- here in Minnesota, by the way, just went to their conference. Yeah, so Rob Walling ended up moving to Minnesota as part of his deal, which is kind of cool. But anyway, <laughs> I, I interviewed him. Speak. He's a he's a cool dude. <laughs> yeah, he's really cool. Yeah, he came out to my event as well, and and just just right before that happened, and um, he actually he didn't 
talk about it at my event, but he actually was partially coming to the event to learn a little bit more about this because that deal was potentially in the work. So anyway, off topic, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, so, so for me, when I talk about these numbers, you know, oftentimes these are more of what the, the financial buyer is thinking about these kind of numbers. They're, they're looking at this as kind of their benchmark or their framework of where they're willing to buy. And then obviously you raise and lower your multiple based on how risky you as a buyer think that this thing is going to be. Mm-hmm. So so I think in that question that you asked, I, to set the stage and, and the context, that's about what you're, um, what you're expecting to pay, and then it'll fluctuate significantly in some cases or less in other cases. So the other part of your question was what? <laughs> well, and, and, and I think that is actually, I'd, um, it kind of piggybacks off of the, the lead pages in Drip. Because I think for our listeners and for a little bit of clarification, like what, like what is a website, like what is the, like the type of companies, right? So lead pages in Drip uh, might be a good example. But um, I think, you know, my question was like, what, what are these companies, you know, because I think, you know, if you look at all the people in today's economy that are entrepreneurs, you've got, you know, the plumber who had a plumbing business and, you know, he did the, you know, yellow pages and all that stuff, but now he drives a bunch of traffic online. So like in your mind, is it a hybrid company? Is it only software? Is it the blogger who's sitting in his basement selling life planning journals? Like what is it that you mean by an online company? And and I think that also kind of, like I said, uh, dovetails perfectly after the strategic Uh, analogy you gave yeah okay so when it comes to when i when i define an online company it's it's difficult because like in today's day and age almost every offline business has some component of online they almost all have a website they almost all drive traffic even if it's from yelp or uh you know google maps or something like that so it, it can be difficult but when i talk about it um and actually when we break it down in the report that i was talking about that we do we have basically let's see one two three four five six seven about eight different categories of um online business types and I'm not sure if it would be helpful to go through each of those just to define them quickly and give you an example of of one that, that you might know like as a popular one. Would that be helpful in any way? Yeah, I think so because, you know, I – I think the, clear, the the demystifying this because our world is so digital nowadays, I, I think there's a lot of people that I know that have talked like, hey, you know what, I would like to move my business online or like to have, but there's no idea about, I don't, I don't you know, how, that there's actually brokers out there that actually buy and sell company or online companies. So yeah, some examples I think would be fantastic. Okay. So, and I think maybe a, a an interesting way to think about the definition in my mind is an online business, when I think about it, is is really that the the transaction, the way the thing actually makes money occurs through the website. Now, there could be an, an offline retail store uh, locally who does 20 cent, 20% of their business in face-to-face sales, and then the other 80% they're selling on Amazon, for instance. So, um, so there's, there's certainly hybrids, but, uh, when I think about it is the majority of their transactions, the way that they make money actually occurs through the website or a mobile app or something like that. So, um, but in terms of these different type of business models, the first one would be content and media. And so content and media would be like, um, think about Huffington post, for instance. I mean, you've probably seen articles from them or even like CNN.com, you know, they basically specialize in producing really good content. And, and getting eyeballs to those websites so that they can sell 
advertisers advertising space. Mm-hmm. That's the first kind of model. Uh, the second would be like a membership and subscription kind of model. So you can think about, um, I don't know, like uh, um, if you had a membership to, uh, I'm trying to think of well, an example Mick, of an Mixer, offline Mixer, one. Mixer G, I had Andrew Warner on the on the show, right? Where it's like a few hundred bucks a month and you get a bunch of content and it's a subscription, I guess. I don't know if that's that falls into the category. Yeah, or like, okay, say you love dog training and you want to go geek out and talk to everybody about dog training. So you you pay to be part of abcdogtraining.com and so you can go in there and there's a community and there's training and all this kind of stuff and you pay 10 bucks a month to do that. You know, that'd be a simple example. And I was trying to think of a more, like Netflix would be a perfect example of a subscription site. You know, you pay for the access to those, to those videos, right? So that would be an example of something like that. Um, the next one would be e-commerce and that's literally selling stuff stuff, widgets through your website. And there's different types of e-commerce. So so think amazon.com, right? That's a perfect example of e-commerce. But there's different types of e-commerce. So there's one aspect of e-commerce that is considered dropship. So that's where you have your suppliers actually ship directly to your customers. You take the order on your website, send that order over to your supplier, they ship to your customer. There are other types of online business where you actually inventory and you process or you may maybe you have a fulfillment house who does the the inventory processing for you and things like that. So that's more of the traditional e-commerce. And then there's a lot. The new trend now is selling through Amazon. So you'll actually ship your inventory to Amazon and let them find and fulfill those orders and customers. In your app. So so and each of those have different average, so to speak, valuations associated with them. The next one would be SaaS or software as a service and other types of software products. So we mentioned you mentioned Drip um, and uh, Lead Pages. That is an example of a SaaS. It's it's software that you access through your browser. One of the most commonly one known ones would be something like Salesforce.com. You pay a monthly subscription to be able to use this software they provide to you. You don't have to like install it on your computer or every employee's computer. It just happens through the browser, right? So that's another one. That's a really hot one right now. A lot of people, there's a lot of demand for that particular business model. Um, and it has the highest average valuations of all that we've talked about so far. The next one would be lead generation. So so think about something like um, mint.com. I believe, I don't, I don't know their whole business model, but basically you can use their service to track your personal finances. And then they try to sell you stuff um, as part of that. Like mm-hmm. they, they basically generate leads for mortgage companies and, and insurance companies and things like that. They don't actually fulfill on insurance and mortgage. They just send the leads to somebody else and and those people pay for those leads. That'd that be like a Zillow too, So that'd be an, an example. Zillow would be a great example of that. Exactly, yeah. Um, and then basically two more marketplaces, uh, transactional type of ones. That would be like, um, for instance, uh, a eBay where you as a, you are like eBay acts as the middleman. They bring together buyers and sellers and they take a piece of it, right? And then the last one would be services. So it might be like a SEO or a search engine optimization company or a graphic design company who sells their products online. So 99designs is mm-hmm. one that maybe people have heard about where um, you can get your designs done online and, uh, and you just pay through the website. It all happens virtually. You don't have like a designer coming to your office to sit next to you and design, right? So mm-hmm. so those are the types of online businesses when I talk about online businesses that I'm thinking about. Got it. Got it. I think that helps because, you know, I, there's a lot of um, 
there's a lot of solopreneurs that are out in their you know office or their house that are blogging and that are generating traffic and some sort of revenue in in, in ad hoc ways, but it's not necessarily a business model. So you're 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 very honed in on an actual business that's got trends and a lot of different I mean a lot of the stuff that you can apply to the brick and mortar businesses as well. Yeah, I mean at the end of the day, if you can find somebody who is an amazing blogger, like super passionate about a topic, and they built up this really loyal audience and a bunch of traffic, um, that actually is ripe for an acquisition if you're smart. If you can come in there and utilize the platform that this person has created and then start monetizing that, that actually is a really good model uh, if, if you can find those types of deals. In some, ca- some cases, you can actually keep the person um, who's been creating the content on on an ongoing basis and share in some of those profits and things hmm. like that. But, but yeah, absolutely. Like when I'm looking at an online business to buy, there's kind of two criteria or sniff test um, that I would be thinking about in order to decide yes or no, if I'll buy this thing, you know, aside from the obvious things, like, is it making enough money to make this worth my time? But one of them is, can this online business support paid traffic? In other words, can I get a return on investment on advertising that I'm going to do to this online business? And you'd be amazed at how many online businesses don't pass that sniff test because they are, like you're saying, a blogger who's just out there and he's totally relying upon, you know, getting free traffic. And his business model is one that really just can't support that type of thing. Um, and then the second one, which is it sounds funny, but it's actually really, really useful. And it's like I like to take complicated stuff and simplify it as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And it's this. If if um, if you are not proud to tell your most innocent niece that you own this website, you should not buy it. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> and you'd be amazed at how many online businesses are for sale that do not pass that test. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're just doing shady things that are, in some cases, unethical. So, so those are my two sniff tests that I have. Well, I, I think it's... I mean, it's, like you said, you broke something very complicated into very simple terms and very simple criteria that, you know, you hold yourself to, which, uh, like you said, I'm sure didn't come right off the bat. And, and I want to ask you about that blogger and the the selling, um, you know, where the acquiring the, the blogger, because I, I always think Tim Ferriss, right, where but there's a lot of different, you know, variations of that type of individual. Are you think is this someone? I mean, I'm, I can only imagine the challenge would be that someone's built up their brand, their equity, and their trust in their um, in their followers. I mean, to not do like the bait and switch, where all of a sudden now they're just getting bombarded by you know mortgage rates and stuff like that. So I'm assuming you're talking about very complimentary services or something that would fall into the passion of whatever that person's talking about. Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's very short-term focused um, people who do what I do. I'm not like that. I, I I play for the long game. And if you just literally buy an online business and start hammering the email list and putting ads everywhere, um, that might get you a quick return, but it's not going to lend it. And, and maybe you flip it and, and let it be somebody else's problem after you've kind of ruined it. Um, I don't advocate that. I advocate like two things that are sustainable that the, the audience wants. I mean, a simple approach to kind of a scenario that we're talking about would be instead of just throwing ads up and um you know putting putting up mortgage like like let's say it's a, a website all about um bicycle you know biking mountain biking or something like that mm-hmm. people are super passionate about mountain biking you start throwing ads up about getting mortgage or something like that it has, it's a big disconnect there mm-hmm. right and it'll turn off your audience but if instead you start by surveying that audience and say 
what is your number one challenge related to mountain biking, for instance? And start like actually listening to your customers. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so funny how many times this, like I give this advice to other people, but sometimes I need to hear it as well, which is like, if you have a, if you're unsure of how to begin, go talk to your clients because oftentimes right. that's the best person to answer it for you. So, so anyway, that's normally what I'll do is I'll start understanding that market, finding out where the needs are and start filling those needs because, um, doing it the other way is, is, is maybe a short-term ROI, but long-term that does not lend itself well to kind of having an apartment building that continues to pay you cash long-term. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's an absolute perfect example. And it's interesting that you, you talk about the ability to withstand paid ads too, because I mean, I think there's, when you say right for the picking, I mean, to be able to throw some capital and have a good strategy behind paid ads, the, the return can be astronomical because it's, the certain individuals might not know how to apply that capital or not might not have access to it. Yeah, it's really common in e-commerce businesses because of how capital intensive they are. Um, if you look at, like, let's say you're selling um, widgets, whatever these widgets are. I don't know, like dog, going back to the, I don't know why I always talk about dogs, but dog dog toys, right? <laughs> it's because so, you just got a dog, say, right? <laughs> it's because I just got a dog, honestly, yeah. Um, but, but like, let's say there's a dog toy, right? Um, you might have margins of, I don't know, 50% or 30% on that dog toy. So for you to turn over enough inventory, it's going to take a lot of capital. And if you don't have access to credit to be able to do that, like it's really hard in some cases to to scale up because it's so capital intensive. And it's really similar when you think about advertising, because oftentimes you'll get a specific return and it might be, it might be a 50%, 50% return on your advertising spend, but to really like crank up the volume you, you have to, in some cases go a little bit negative for a while. And there's solutions to this kind of stuff and things, but but yeah, it's absolutely the case. So if, if somebody came in, and this is one of the mistakes I think I've seen buyers make, is that they'll they'll let's say they have capital of I don't know 100 grand or something to buy an online business. They spend that entire 100 grand acquiring the thing, and they don't leave themselves any any working capital for these kind of opportunities to go mm-hmm. out and you know hire a designer to redesign the thing, or to go out and, and hire somebody to to advertise um, and to be able to to fund that advertising to grow it put themselves in, in kind of a tough spot there. So mm-hmm. yeah, you're spot on in terms of that piece. So curious, I mean, what is your experience or exposure working with banks in this in this space? I mean, are, are you seeing bank financing going on to actually do the brokerage of the deal? Are you working with banks that'll actually give you lines of credit for the ad spend or for the additional capital that you need? I mean, what, what, are, what are some of the things that you've seen? Yeah. So, okay. A couple of things. I'll first speak from my own experience, which is we did not go to banks. We went to an individual investor who we already had in our network. And we did a couple different structures of deals with him. The simplest being a straight um, debt deal where he would basically fund the transaction for 10% annualized interest on that. And a uh, very, very simple, clean deal. So the nice thing about that is let's just say that we're getting, well, Early on, we were getting triple digit returns, but let's just take that out of it. Let's say we want to scale this up. We wanted to build a team and our target was, I don't know, 30 to 40% annualized returns um, on these online businesses that we were buying. And if we can fund those deals with 10% money, then you can, you, you know, you can typically cover your, um, you know, your debt coverage pretty, pretty easily in that case. Mm-hmm. So this is a really risky strategy because unlike real estate, you don't have insurance 
if you know like metaphorically speaking these online business were to burn down you don't have raw land anymore mm-hmm. you don't have insurance that covers everything you can't rebuild well, i mean you could but it's you might as well start from scratch if that were to happen so let me just say that this is a really risky strategy to, to leverage yourself for this kind of thing so so that's one structure that we use and there's no reason you can't go to a bank it's no it's really not that much different um from offline businesses honestly but there's like the collateral is normally not there. These well, only businesses. You, you've, you've got no assets to pledge, right? I mean, so I mean, you're not. If you were to go to our local community bank, and say, by the way, I'm going to pledge uh, my hosting services, my uh, you know fifty thousand email list. They're going to look at you like you're nuts. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, you're going to have to figure out collateral in some other capacity in some cases. But the SBA does actually fund online businesses. So one of the guys in my community he had to go to 13 different banks to buy this e-commerce business that he wanted to buy. Um, And he went through asking for SBA loans. And this was, let's just say it was close to a million dollar loan. Um, And, but on the 13th one, that person happened to have, it was like the president or CEO of the bank who understood Mm -hmm. Google and how Google works and was willing to kind of take a, a bit of a risk on it. So he got that deal funded, but there are like brokerages out there who will list deals that are kind of pre-approved, quote unquote, SBA type of deals. So you can certainly fund it through a bank. You just have to find, you know, obviously the the right bank. And and some it might be persistence. Like his name's Matthew. Like like Matthew had to go through thirteen different banks to find one that would say yes. But it's absolutely possible. So a couple questions about, you know, as you're looking at these businesses, now that we've got a good idea of the businesses and how they're getting valued, what are some of the key metrics that you're looking at? Like when you do the due diligence, tell me what you're looking for when you're uh, peeking under the hood. Yeah. So the first thing that I want to find, I want to see is I want to see the, uh, well, okay, this is this. Okay. Are you assuming I've already decided that I'm interested in buying this online business? Yeah. Let's say, let's say you looked at the cash flow. You said, okay, you passed the sniff test. You say, you know what? I can apply a bunch of, you know, paid ads per month. We think we can get the return. You know, you're proud of it. You've kind of got a viable business. You know, what is it that you're going to be looking for? And I guess it probably depends significantly on the different eight key categories too, right? So maybe that's a two part question, which is, What's your most preferred category? And then like when you do a due diligence, what are the things that you're looking for? Okay. Well, so again, simplifying as much as I can, what I look for in a deal when I'm acquiring it is I want significant or even unlimited upside and I want limited downside. Um, It's funny that sometimes people don't think about it from that perspective is they want something that's so stable for so long um, oftentimes, and not I shouldn't say oftentimes, but in many cases, businesses that have been extremely stable and flat for a long period of time have often hit their plateau, and there's not a lot of upside potential. So the only place it can go is down. So, so when I'm going through my d- due diligence, I have this in my mind, which is like number one, I want to evaluate how risky, how much downside potential does this online business have, and then number two how much upside potential do I have? Like, could this thing be 10 times bigger? Could it be 20 times bigger? Is it like, like, could it grow massively if I were to do X, Y, Z? So that's the framework that I'm thinking about when I'm going through this process. But the first thing I'll do is I will get on a call with the seller and I'll just have a conversation with them. And I'll, you know, just like you and I are having, I'll just ask questions about the business. And that will give me some answers to like, at a high level, some of the types of things that I'm talking about, which is upside and downside. And my, one of my favorite questions to ask, and I usually will ask this near the end, 
is something along the lines of, if you had unlimited time, money, and resources, what would you do to grow this business? And the funny thing about that is that, number one, it will tell you, the because op- oftentimes the owner is, it, like, they understand the business like nobody else does. And so if they can give you some good growth opportunities and you actually want to capitalize on them, that's great. And in some cases, the owners don't want to do that because it affects their lifestyle. So, like, for instance, if, if they saw a huge opportunity to go out there and create a new product line, like, yeah, but that would mean I'd have to start dealing with many suppliers, and I really don't want to deal with that. Like, I just want to sit and make money every day, you know? Like, like that's actually a pretty mm-hmm. common thing that's out there. So there could be some good opportunities there in those conversations. But the other interesting thing is sometimes they will tell you actually things are opportunities that are really hidden risks. Because in my opinion, every danger and opportunity can be, or every danger and risk can be flipped around into an opportunity. So for instance, um, they might say something like, well, I go out and try to get two or three more traffic sources to this website. So if I were to flip that opportunity around into a risk, it now becomes, um, oh, the risk is I'm relying upon one traffic source that could at any day go away, mm-hmm. right? So, so you can kind of look at it from that perspective. So that would be the first part of this, this process would be just a conversation with the seller. Assuming everything looked good there, I'd start getting into, um, the simplest way I could put it would be, I will take the stated profit and loss statement or income statement, or whatever it is that they, they're, they're calling it. Um, I would take that and I would try to recreate it by verifying all of the revenue. That and, and the nice thing about the online stuff is you can literally do that through a screen sharing session. You don't have to drive over to Timbuktu, North Dakota or whatever. Like you can just get on a Skype call with somebody and have them share your screen and show you their merchant account, show you their Amazon account, show you their Google AdSense account. And you can actually see month by month going back as far as the website has been created exactly what the revenue was. And you can, you can verify all of that from the source. And then you can kind of do the same thing through credit card statements and all that kind of stuff, looking at the QuickBooks file, whatever. Um, so that's really like my next step of really verifying that this thing is legit is making sure that I can kind of recreate the profit and loss statement with real live verifiable data. And you'd be amazed. Like I would say 9.9 times out of 10, they don't match. And <laughs> part of it is it's just simple things like the way they do their accounting, like when the money is deposited into the bank account from Amazon is different than when Amazon accrues it. So there's obviously normally explanations. And as long as within a few percent, it's usually not an issue. But there are cases where there are commingled um, websites where there's like 10 websites and they have it all in one PayPal account. And it's like a nightmare. So I would say if, if somebody's looking to sell, like start thinking about how can you clean up your books and, and make sure that everything is, is, uh, separated. And, and it's, it goes the same, like a nightmare one would have been this guy who, um, he had an e-commerce business and he commingled it with his personal, um, transactions. So he was like traveling to Florida and Hawaii and stuff like that. <laughs> And it was all mixed in and there was no way to like recreate his profit and loss statement. So I basically had to hire a bookkeeper to go in and go line by line through two years worth of transactions and it was a nightmare. So so after you've recreated the financials and you've, you, you're feeling out that, that this is more and more legit, I mean, is there one of the eight key, eight categories that you like gravitate towards? Because you know how a blogger monetizes their business versus an e-commerce, you know, e-commerce, our listeners and a lot of, a lot of people we talk to are probably going to go, okay, well, e-commerce, I get it. Cause it's, it's very similar to, 
you know, a hybrid or an offline business where you've got all the same stuff, right? You, I mean, how you're like recognizing and how you're uh, creating revenue and having your cost of goods, etc. So, what what are the? I guess I'm I'm trying to think of exactly how to articulate my question is, you know, are there other key metrics or other pieces of data if you were to go into some of the more specifically to the online categories like a drip or something else or you know, I, I guess I don't know exactly if, um, if I'm asking the question correctly. Yeah, well, let me, I can tackle that from a couple perspectives. So number one, the common the common things I will look at um, that I did not mention, which is actually one of the first things I'll do as well, is I'll get access to their traffic analytics. Typically, it's called Google Analytics. That's the most common one you'll get access to. And basically, it tells you where all of the traffic is coming from and that, when I say where, it, it'll actually tell you geographically where that's coming from. It will tell you if it's coming from Google or from Yahoo or from uh, Bing or if it's coming from Amazon or you know some, some other blogger or something like that. It will tell you all of that. And it will tell you what people are actually doing once they get to the website. So normally the, the first few things I will look at when I do that is, number one, is I'll, I'll look at where they're getting their traffic from and how diversified that is. So let's say, for instance, that they're getting 90% of their traffic from Google search engines. That, in many cases, can be extremely risky because as many people who have tried to optimize their website and get higher in the rankings, is that is a difficult game to fight and it's changing all the time. So if if you buy an asset that that really the source of the revenue comes from the traffic, so you got to figure out what like what's going on with this traffic. So if it is high search traffic, then I'll find out how diversified is that search. So another way to put that would be, is there one keyword that's driving almost all of their traffic? Or is it like thousands of different keywords from thousands of different pieces of content on their website that are driving a very diversified set of traffic? In the latter case, it's obviously a lot less risky. Mm -hmm. The next thing I'll look at is um, where the traffic is coming from. And, you know, I want to make sure that it's coming from, you know, the, the, the big English speaking countries because I don't have like a Spanish team and um, like I don't like to monetize sites that get a lot of traffic, say, from certain countries that are difficult to monetize. Um, so I'll look for things like majority U.S. traffic, um, some U.K. traffic, some Australia traffic. You know, that's the kind of stuff that I'm normally comfortable with working with. Um, and then I'll look at kind of where where people are visiting the website. Like, what are the top pages on that website? And and then I'll go look at those, and I'll look at the website and be like, okay, um, they're they're creating some really good content, or they've got a great product. Um, and this is these are the pages on the website that seem to be um, helping people decide that they want to, you know, whether it's buy the product or click on an ad or whatever. So so really just kind of almost reverse engineering where all that traffic is coming from and what they're doing on the website. And again, I'm looking at it from the risk perspective and the opportunity perspective, because if I see something quick that I can change on the website that's going to increase its revenue quickly, that's also a really good sign as well. Now, uh, we'll go. So yeah, I, didn't, I don't mean to interrupt. Keep going. I was going to say, um, now in relation to the different business models, so there are certainly some metrics that are extremely important in different types of business models. So um, let's take membership and even software as a service. I think one of the most important things you want to look at is your customer churn and attrition and like how long people actually stick around 
because that will actually tell you if the offering is valuable to people. If people want to keep paying you for it, obviously it's valuable. And that's a business that I want to build on, right? Um, the other would be like in an e-commerce business, it's really important to look at your refund and your trans and your um, chargebacks because that will tell you how satisfied the customer is. So in each of these types of businesses, there's different little metrics like that that you want to look at to make sure that the core business, the core product, the core offering is actually valuable. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. And I think we hit a gold mine here because um, in, in a lot of the physical offline uh, it's the same thing and I think it's just you know meshing the terminology together so bear with me for a second here too so like we we a lot of my listeners or the, the the stuff that's kind of gotten popular in the market is the value building system by John Warlow he wrote a book called built to sell and it there's these eight key things in you know the offline world that people look at right and so one of them is client concentration so I want to go back to your analogy about Google Analytics and the traffic sources and everything that you said it's very applicable because you know, I don't know if your experience is, and, and I can I can kind of relate the analogies back and forth with the online where, so Target is here locally in the Twin Cities, same thing with Best Buy, et cetera, right? So there's so many businesses that it could be, you know, 2 million to 30 million where half the revenue comes from one customer, right? So we discount a company like that because all of their, you know, all of their good chunk of their revenue comes from one traffic source. If you think about the traffic, you, you, you really just dissected the customer base based on the ge geographically what pages they're looking at all that stuff I mean it's the same stuff so how diverse is your customer base you know it's like you don't want it more than 10 to 15 percent of your overall revenue and then how they're and then how do you track the metrics of how you acquire those customers so what's your uh, client acquisition cost all that stuff is I mean it's the same stuff in online too and, and I think you know I don't know if you can expand on this uh, this topic, and I know I know we don't probably have enough time in two different days to, to address it, but in the the offline store or offline businesses that are tr that are becoming online, I think there's a absolute m pile of digital agencies that end up fleecing or overselling themselves to these companies that have zero idea what's going on, and for. I don't think people realize that everything that you just said, if you set it up correctly, you can track and you've got more data that is has more integrity behind it than almost anything. So I don't know if you want to expand on that or if you just if you agree or disagree. Yeah, I mean, I think there's so from the perspective of a um, not tech savvy business owner, like they like for instance, let's just say it's a it's a dry cleaner and they love just that smell of fresh clean clothes and being able to hand that to a customer like they don't want to go deal with like Facebook and like Yelp and all of these types of things and so they'll find somebody that that can sell them um and there are companies out there I mean like that will certainly charge you way too much that you could go to a website like Fiverr F-I-V-E-R-R.com, pay somebody five or 10 bucks to go set up your Facebook page and then pay them, you know, five bucks, uh, you know, a week or something like that to, to post once a day to your, to your account. But, you know, there are people that charge like thousand dollars a month for that kind of stuff. And, and I, you know, yeah, like, I don't know if we want to dive into all the details on that, but there are certainly a lot of, um, agencies that charge way too much for the service that they provide. And oftentimes they're not actually 
generating business that you wouldn't have otherwise got. Um, right. They're just making sure that you have something happening online so that you're not like, uh, you know, um, what's the, um, a ghost town, let's just call it. <laughs> so, well, and, and yeah. With the, so with the Google know. analytics and the Facebook, I, I think, you know, just to probably tie a bow on it for now, but I, you know, as a business owner, people are very comfortable asking questions till they get the results that they want. And unfortunately in the online world, it costs a lot of money till you really figure out that you got to either learn it or do it yourself. And with the Google analytics and what you described, I just think it's, it's, it's so powerful because look at what you just said, you're valuing the company on and, the, and you're ver- verifying the legitimacy of it. And it's all very possible to track it all because the, the tools are there and you can really dive into it. Um, and then, uh, you talked about the, the the membership and the software as a service, which I think it's just fantastic because you're talking about contracts, right? In the in the normal, you know, offline business, it's we're talking about you know, are you going out and having to restart and resell every single month, or do you have something that uh, you have repeat buyers that are coming back, whether they're on contracts or just repeat buyers? So I think everything you said is extremely uh, valuable because it relates to both to both sides. Um, yeah, I, I will tell you this since we're kind of on this topic of comparing offline and online is that the, I think the biggest mistake that one of the biggest mistakes people make, or I, I shouldn't say it's a mistake, I should say the biggest myth is that in some, for some reason, websites are different than real businesses. They're not. Like it is a business. And mm-hmm. if you don't treat it that way, you're in trouble because oftentimes people think about it like investing in, let's say, the stock market or something like that. They can just buy this thing and it'll make money magically and they don't have to do anything with it. <laughs> Like what would happen to an offline business if you ignored it for six months? Like it's going to start dying. Like it's going to decline typically, Mm -hmm. you know, assuming that you don't have somebody there focused on growth and you've replaced yourself, which is a whole nother topic. So, Mm -hmm. no, I think that's a, a, it's just, you know, the, the big black hole of not knowing, right? So it's, it's being comfortable with where do you find the information online? And if you can't find it, what questions ask? Because if you, you know, it's a lot different than walking through someone's warehouse, counting the inventory, getting a CPA firm to come in, validate that, you know, everything's there, they depreciate it, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's just different places that you're looking for the same information. It, it is. Yeah. And, and I mean, it always helps to have somebody that you trust, um, that can help you with that kind of stuff. And like, I, I know from personal experience that I'm not going to try to do my own taxes. <laughs> so you just got to find somebody that you trust, um, who, who can speak the, the online language, so to speak, and, um, can help you navigate some of these waters and help you make some of those decisions of who you should and should not work with. And being able to like, like at the end of the day, when I've had people ask me to look at their, um, analytics and their traffic and stuff like that, they don't want me to show them the data. They just want me to tell them what to do. So you just need somebody to look at the data for you and then tell you what, tell them, <laughs> explain what to do. So it's like, okay, well, like somebody looked at the data and they're like, hey, your Facebook is generating new business for you. Go post more frequently. Like, just tell me <laughs> to go do that and I will go do it, right? Yep. So I think that would be my recommendation from that perspective. I love it. Um, if, there, if there's anything that we haven't touched on because i know we could probably keep going on a lot of different subjects if there's anything that we haven't touched on if there's one thing that you want to leave our listeners with what what do you think it would be um you know this is it can be a little bit intimidating depending on who the listener is to to talk about all all this online stuff the one thing that i will tell you and the trend that i see happening in my industry is that people are creating like mini funds 
to uh, bring investor money together and start putting money into these deals and operate them kind of like a uh, a mini you know private equity fund or something like that. Um, so there are ways to get into the game without you having to understand all of, all of the technical sort of stuff that I uh, I discussed. So if this asset class, so to speak, is interesting, um, I would certainly encourage people, I mean, feel free to email me and I can make a couple of recommendations. I personally, I'm not saying this because I have a fund. I, I do. I prefer to be in control of my own destiny and not have a bunch of investors. So, um, But there are people that like just do this. So if this is interesting, there's other ways to get into the game besides just like you going out and starting to run an online business. But I will tell you that the people, the most common person who comes to me for help is sort of a let's just say a 40 to 60 year old who is wanting to get out of corporate life that they've been climbing for a very long time. They've got a nest egg saved up and they're willing to risk some of that capital to find something that's going to give them time and location freedom. And the cool thing about online businesses is that they can absolutely do that for you. And, um, you know, you're going to have a steep learning curve if you've never dealt with it. But there are lots and lots of people who can help you, I think, um, and, and can do a lot of the hard technical work for you and would give you the ability to sort of exit your corporate life and, and do this kind of thing. So I just, you know, I just want to encourage people if that is something that they want to do to at least explore this, this, this type of an industry and, and this type of asset class. Well, I think that's a, I, I like that idea because you know a lot of our listeners are planning on selling their company at some point or transitioning out and the biggest challenge is like what am I going to do next so to be able to dabble into this to not tie yourself I think the biggest fear is to like okay if I sold my company I got to go start another one which means I got to go tie myself to a desk in an office so it's a Mm -hmm. it's a really interesting thought that you just said there Chris on how an entrepreneur can migrate into a different life and a totally different lifestyle and continue to learn and actually find some passion without a lot of risk in this online world. I think that's a, you've, you, I think you've broken down some of the myths and barriers behind it. So I like it. Um, what is the one way that our listeners can get in touch with you? Um, you can go to my personal website, chrisyates.org or feel free to send me an email at chris at chrisyates.org. Um, and I do the, the event that we've mentioned is called Rhodium Weekend. It's R-H-O-D-I-U-M weekend.com. And it's basically an event for people who do what I do and, and people who are interested in getting into this business um, to come together and connect. So those are the two best ways, if, depending on if you want to just chat with me on the phone or email or if you want to actually meet me in person. Chris, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it and very, very uh, humbled and, and grateful that you would invite me.